That should get you thinking. Now, before we read our text, which starts at verse 17, you look out for the word call or called that you have in your Bible in your translation in front of you. Call or called. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as, he, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation where they were when God called them. You were a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when he was called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when is called is Christ's slave. You were both bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person is responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Again, remember, Paul's addressing the believers. And the text is about calling, it's about contentment, but it's also about change. But not just any change. See, Paul is not resisting just any kinds of change here. He's speaking of a preoccupation of the Corinthians of trying to change their status. He's not at all opposed to change because we know that conversion itself is a radical change. Christianity 101, life transformation, that's all about change. And one of the most amazing and encouraging verses in the Bible is found in 2 Corinthians where it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. It's about change. Jesus transforms the life of whoever trusts in him. That speaks of a total transformation of our inner self. The moment that any woman or any man places their faith in Jesus, we become completely born again in him. We're made brand new on the inside. We may look the same on the outside, but our inner being, our spirit, is transformed. We're new creations. Our sins are completely forgiven. They're cast into the sea of God's grace, and a brand new inner life in Jesus has begun. And to a certain degree, that new inner life also has an impact on the outer life. Because salvation itself is a radical change from darkness to light, from death to life, from being under condemnation to being justified. And once we are made new on the inside, things begin to change on the outside. Old sinful habits and practices begin to be set aside. New practices and habits become embraced. The things that we used to love to do, we, we no longer do. The things that we didn't want to do before, we now begin to love to do. The Holy Spirit is living in us. He's helping us walk through life in a new way. And so we then begin to read the Bible with a new passion and a new understanding. We begin to pray about everything. And we start seeking out people, fellowship with other Christians. We start showing the love of Jesus to other people. We begin to treat our daily responsibilities and duties more seriously. And so in this sense, you know, the Christian should never be content with his or her spiritual status, but is, we're always pressing on to a greater maturity, a greater growth, uh, a sanctification, holiness, words that are used in the Bible. And so it's not difficult to see how Paul's teaching on change relates to what he has taught earlier in this chapter. Some of the Corinthians supposed 
that uh, changing their relationships would make them more spiritual. A couple who would, a married couple who would abstain from sex altogether would be more spiritual than a married couple who enjoys a sexual relationship. Or one who would renounce marriage for a higher calling of serving God would be more spiritual than those who remain restricted in their marriage. And Paul looks at those situations and he says no, emphatically, he just says no. The spiritual Christian is the one who maintains their marital commitments or their, uh, their commitments to God in which they, uh, he or she first found at the time of their salvation. You bloom where you're at. You move where you are. This is what Paul's trying to say to the church. But it raises more questions. To what degree should there be outside changes when God is working on the inside? If everything on the inside is new, then, then we, you know, maybe we should then completely get rid of every aspect on the outside and start all over again. And that was actually a very important question that was being asked by the, the church in Corinth. They were called into a relationship with Jesus from a midst of a sinful culture. Many of them had led very sinful lives. They had clearly been transformed on the inside, but there were still changes that were happening on the outside as well. But how much of these things on the outside actually needed to change? So Paul makes a statement of a, a general principle in verse 17. And so as we look into the passage here, and it's important we think about this language of call and calling that Paul uses in this verse and the others, because he keeps repeating it through our whole section today. And as you look at what Paul says, you will see that there are two ways that he's using these words. The first and foremost is the word called is referring to the calling that is salvation. You know, calling to repentance by faith and, um, you know, by which we become a follower of Jesus. If you were to look up every reference to the word call or calling in the New Testament, you would find that it's almost always used in this way. That that is the primary calling of every believer, to love and follow Jesus. And you see it here. This is what Paul is saying. The other way that calling is used in these verses is a sense of vocation or perhaps what one would call a situation. I, I prefer vocation. Now, when you look at Paul's usage of, of language of calling here, and in his other letters as well, it's very clear for him that the most important sense in which we're to think about this idea of call is as it relates to our salvation. Most important thing. Any other sense of call or calling is always secondary to our salvation. So remember that. Salvation, the call of God on our lives, is number one. And so you have Paul here addressing the Corinthians as those who have been called. That very first instance, they've been called to God in Christ Jesus and who at that time of calling, they were in a particular place, station, position, vocation, you know, uh, which was also considered as God's calling or God's assignment as you read it in your text. In other words, where they are and what they are doing in their lives is no accident. Nevertheless, while they're in their particular station in life, which was no accident, um, uh, they should be seen that they are under God's assignment. This is part of God's plan. This is, you know, still important, but secondary to that calling of following Jesus. I have to say this. Most certainly, though, um, there has to be some outside changes to some people, like a bank robber doesn't continue in a life of crime when he becomes a Christian. A converted prostitute doesn't persist in her trade, right? You remember that Jesus told the adulterous woman in John chapter 8 to go and sin no more. So Paul is talking to those who, who have become status 
conscious, not to fix their attention or their energies on a upward change of status. It's all about status for these people right now. And for Paul, the answer to the discontentment of that culture of more, it was a culture of more, um, was for them to understand God's call in their lives. We've been called by God. We have been called by God to an assignment, a lot in life, as husbands, as wives, as fathers, as mothers, as children, as siblings, as doctors, as teachers, as lawyers, as homemakers, as carpenters, as engineers, as electricians, and plumbers, and business owners, and the list goes on. God has given all of us this. In his providence, a calling in life, a vocation. And so, do you see there are two senses in which we are subject to God's call? The first is the saving call of the gospel that makes us, that renovates us, that makes us new at a very basic level. And the second is the call of God in his providence given to each of us in the various circumstances that we find ourselves in our day. And our dissatisfaction, our discontentment with our lives very often results when we confuse the two callings. When we try to root our identity in our vocational call of God and that becomes our focus. I, I call it more hor- horizontal, like on the web of human relationships and our earthly responsibilities. When that becomes our focus, and we look for our identity in this way, we're placing a burden on our jobs, on our marriages, on our daily duties that they were never meant to bear. And so when you look for your identity and your worth in your daily vocation, you'll never be satisfied. Or what if you lose your vocation? What then? But when you begin to understand, if you're a Christian, that your identity is rooted in the fact, in the saving, transforming call of redeeming grace in the gospel, well then, you'll begin to see that success or failure at work, frustrations or inadequacies as a parent or doing well in school or keeping up with the brightest kid in class, you'll begin to see that those things simply can't touch who you are. Your identity is not derived from your performance in your earthly vocation. Rather, your identity, my identity is elsewhere. It's in the vertical call of God through the gospel by which he has made us new all over again. And we need to recognize that your real, your true identity is rooted there and you'll begin to find some freedom from the daily demands of our more culture for always looking for that next big thing, convinced by our culture that we really can't complete without academic success or employment advancement or accumulated wealth. No, we gotta learn to just put that aside and be peaceful and free in who we are in Jesus. Literally free in who we are in Jesus. And so Paul's writing these words, not just for the believers in Corinth, but it's meant for all believers. He writes in verse 17, he says, this is a rule that I lay down for all the churches. It's a foundational principle for every believer. Every Christian church in any culture, in any nation of the world, at any time in history, we are to walk as faithful followers of Jesus in wherever place of life it is that God has called us to himself. And it's a fundamental principle for us today. And to drive it home, Paul gives us two case studies that were obviously pertinent to the Corinthian church. 
And so he describes them just to show us how he works it all out. The first one, Paul uses the cultural or religious situation. Found in verses 18 and 19, uh, has to do with the issue of circumcision. Now, again, circumcision was this great badge of belonging to the Jewish people. In Paul's day, many of the early Christians were Jewish, and so when they became Christians, they brought a lot of their Jewish tradition and heritage with them. And now a heritage, when you think about it, that has already been, f- been fulfilled by Christ, and much of which, because it has been fulfilled in Christ, was no longer binding on God's people. And so these Jewish people, as Christians, no longer had to make the required sacrifices at the temple, no longer had to be concerned with what was going on at the temple, no longer had to be concerned with things like circumcision because these were all considered ceremonial law and which was now fulfilled in Jesus. However, as it was still early in the days of the church and people were still sort of working out the transforming impact of Jesus' coming on, on these kind of things. Some of these Jewish Christians were going about making other Christians, especially Gentile converts, feel like perhaps they needed to adopt the Jewish traditions if they really wanted to be full-fledged Christians, right? Well, these <laughs> converts, were the, they, they were the uncircumcised seeking to be circumcised. Think about that for a bit. On the other side of this were those who were Jewish and who understood the impact of Jesus all too well. And for that reason, they they almost seemed that they were looking to hide or somehow mask their Jewishness and in effect disdain of their former heritage. These were the circumcised who were seeking to be uncircumcised. Now, both of these categories of, of people, Paul says, remain where you are says that to him. He says, remain as you were when God first called you to himself in Christ Jesus. If you were circumcised, great. If you're uncircumcised, great. These things are an irrelevance now. What really matters is keeping God's commands. Now, if you're an astute reader, you're going to see Paul's words here, and you're going to go, well, wait a minute. If keeping God's commands is what counts, then how can Paul say ignore circumcision? Because that was a command of God, was it not? especially in the, obviously in the Old Testament. You know, how can Paul say that? What does he mean by what he's saying here to the Corinthians? And this answer comes precisely from considering the fact that Paul puts the two statements together. For Paul to talk about ignoring circumcision and still talk about keeping God's commands in the same breath shows quite clearly that for Paul, keeping God's commands after the coming of Jesus, has taken on an entirely different meaning. So when Paul talks about keeping God's commands, he's not referring to some sort of works righteousness that amounts to salvation. Right? That is why he puts the statement together with the statement that circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Because he wants them to see that he is not thinking about keeping the commands of God, the ceremonial law, under the old terms of the old covenant, but rather under the new terms of the new covenant. That that the will of God for his people as it was revealed in and through Jesus. And so Paul takes a, a second example in order to drive home his point having to do with social structures. So he went from a religious, and now he's doing social. And he he takes the situation of slavery, which is quite common in his context. And I think we need to remember that slavery in Paul's day was not about race. 
Rather, we need to think about it in its Greek and Roman context. We often get sidetracked and confused when we read about slavery in the Bible because we tend to read back into the institution of slavery that was particularly the problem in the pre-Civil War U.S. and elsewhere, matter of fact. That was a product of race-based prejudice where an entire people were kidnapped from their homeland, they were forced into the most demeaning servitude, they were viewed viewed, uh, merely as property and not even human. And that really wasn't the slavery that was in Paul's day at all. Now, I'm also not in any way attempting to pass off slavery as a good thing, but rather we need to be accurate in our understanding when we're reading of what's going on here. Slavery is always slavery. In Corinth, it was not, generally speaking, that awful human tragedy that became in many places throughout the world. But certainly some slaves had very difficult lives and circumstances. But in that culture, others were actually skilled professionals, educators, businessmen, women. They were often salaried. And they could, so they could eventually buy themselves into freedom or they could set free, be set free by other people. You can even be made a slave as a punishment for a criminal act. Uh, Although many people actually sold themselves into slavery in order to pay a particular financial debt, right? They had an unpayable debt. They would sell themselves into slavery to get it off them or off their family. So slavery, in fact, was actually the bottom rung on the social ladder. But you still got paid. It had considerable freedom. uh, And your basic needs were met. And for the most part, it provided generally well for up to one-third of the population of a city like Corinth or Rome. One-third of the people were slaves. And so the slave had considerable freedom and very often experienced a mutual benefit along with the master. The owner received the benefit of the slave's services, whatever they were. The slave had steady employment, including having their needs met. And for some to be a slave was uh, preferable to being a free person because they didn't have to worry about the basic life securities. But the one point that marked the slave was that in the final analysis, he didn't belong to himself, but that slave belonged to somebody else. And that's the point that Paul is making with his imagery, that somebody is belonging to somebody else. And apparently some at Corinth thought that that radical freedom that Jesus brings from guilt and the bondage of sin should work itself out an immediate liberation from all sort of earthly servitude. In other words, it should affect everything. And slaves in Paul's days were sometimes uh, inclined to try to revolt against their masters, which we can understand that. But when they did, it was generally disastrous. There was a famous slave uprising under Spartacus. I don't know if you ever saw the movie. It was a century before Paul, and uh, it was brutally put down by the Roman Empire, and the roads were lined with crucified slaves to remind everyone and warn everyone what happens to slaves when you try to act as revolutionaries. And so when Paul deals with slavery here, he's immensely cautious and he's realistic. He has nothing positive at all to say about slavery. And in verse 21, you'd notice that he encourages slaves to even take freedom at every opportunity. He's not endorsing slavery. 
but he doesn't want anyone to think that the radical spiritual liberation the gospel has brought into their lives must also therefore mean that slaves should rise up and revolt against their masters. That would have undoubtedly spelled disaster for the early church and it would have been a misunderstanding of the implications of the gospel. And so Paul's point is this. Even though, socially speaking, you belong to another person, in Christ, you are free, and you're not hindered in any way from honoring Christ fully with your life. Even in your enslaved condition, your personal circumstance does not in any way hinder or prevent you from serving or honoring God fully with your life, just as you are right now, even if those circumstances included slavery. But then Paul looks to the free person. And he reminds them in verse 22 that they are slaves of Christ, that they were bought with a price, that they are not to become slaves to anyone else, meaning not actual enslavement here, but submitting to the wisdom and the will of people over and above or against God. So Paul illustrates two sides of the same coin here. He's talking about slavery. He's talking about freedom. All people, Paul says, are at one point the same time slaves and free people. The truth you focus upon will depend on your circumstances, where you find ourselves. And so the main idea seems to be this. What is vastly more important than your heritage or your culture or your job or your status or your circumstances in this life? The most important thing is your primary calling to love and honor Christ as his disciple. Because you can fully live out that calling, even in the most extreme circumstances. And you should feel no compulsion to change your position. Putting on Jesus, let me put it this way, putting on Jesus doesn't require a change of cultural clothing. And I think we have to notice how radically different Paul's rationale is for keeping your cultural distinctives than the rational current of our day. We say black is beautiful, white is beautiful, Red is beautiful, yellow is beautiful. Therefore, don't try to switch cultures. I would venture to say that Paul argues a little bit differently. Paul says, in essence, white is nothing, black is nothing, red is nothing, yellow is nothing, but honoring God by keeping God's commands is everything. Therefore, don't try to switch the cultures around. Stay where you are and obey God. And the call of God in Christ doesn't result in a social revolution, but rather it's a personal transformation. And so the issue in Corinth was this. When a person comes to Christ, what, the, what does he or she need to leave behind? And Paul has a consistent answer. And essentially, and, and properly understood, it's as little as possible. You don't need to abandon your relationships with even one unbeliever. You don't need to turn your back on your cultural heritage. You don't necessarily need to abandon your vocation. If you can stay with these things and remain with God, then that is just fine. And you see, what Paul is trying to say to us is that now that God has broken in upon you the supernatural work of his Holy Spirit, uh, calling you from death to life by his grace, he's given us this new identity in Jesus. What really matters is living out our new creation in a life that pleases God, seeking to honor God where we are, giving him the glory day by day where we find ourselves, keeping his commandments, focusing on a life that is, that is vertical, 
that, that is Godward, that is focused on him, that is seeking to please him. And that's what counts most of all. And we can find ourselves doing it anywhere on the face of the earth. And I think that that's a word for our time. You know, we're so easily preoccupied whether or not somebody fits our group, whether or not we fit in a particular social group or class, who's in, who's out. We focus far too much on making our lifestyles correspond to the expectation of our chosen social group, right? What are the Joneses doing? What are they going to say? And we're driven by these things. We are. And Paul is saying here that the externals like that aren't what really counts. If you've been called by God into a new life through the gospel, what really counts is living out the new life and the new identity that God has given you in a way that pleases him. The Corinthians were in danger of being defined, of of really defining themselves, of uh, locating their identity and whether or not they had the right badges, right, of social belonging. Do I, you know, am I wearing the right attire, whatever. They were in danger of rooting their identity and their worth in their earthly vocations and not in their heavenly call of God. That really changes us forever. What really matters is the new creation. What really matters is joyfully keeping the commandments and communion with God and working that out in the way where we find ourselves. So how do we apply this passage? Somebody said that contentment is the confidence and quiet peace which enables the Christian to accept our lot in life and to serve God in our circumstances knowing he is the one who appointed them for his glory and for our good. You know, I think some of us are trying to change things in our lives which God does not want changed. The changes God desires in our lives are not so much in our circumstances, but maybe in our character. If we're walking in the light, as we should be, then we need to be continually be in his word. We should see, we will see sins in our, our lives that need repenting of and commands that require our obedience. You know, we, we don't look to change what God has already arranged. We need to change what God has already condemned, the sin, right? Putting off the deeds of the old nature putting off the, and putting on the deeds of the new. That's what, what we get from when we read the scriptures. And for those of us, you know, waiting for things to change, maybe you find yourself and you're stuck, right? You're waiting for things to change before, you know, we serve God. I think Paul's words instruct us to, to get going now. Move, get moving. You are uh, waiting for a less demanding job. Maybe you're waiting for a schedule that's more open, maybe a bigger house or a paycheck. Well, do you recognize that God has called you where you're at? He has called you where you are. God has a purpose for you to serve him where you are. Don't wait for things to change before you start being obedient to the calling. Be obedient in your calling. Be obedient in your vocation, in your station of life. Understand that God calls us to himself, but he sovereignly calls all of us, each and every one of us, to specific jobs, stations, and seasons in life. Pastors, teachers, homemaker, painter, lawyer, programmer, nurse, student, engineer, children, parents, doctors, siblings. Be content with the station of life or calling that God has placed in you. 
This is hard though, isn't it? You know, social media often generates discontent in all of our lives, especially in regards to where God has currently placed us. You can only take so much, and sometimes we just turn it off. But yet God calls us to be content with our current calling. Paul mentions this three times in verse 17, 20, and 24. Remain where you're called. So my question to you today is, what is your current calling? Wife, mother, homemaker, student, father, child, college student, mother of young children, mother of teens, father, lawyer, engineer, teacher, software developer. Again, I can go through all these different things, business owner, whatever it is. This is the setting. Think about this. This is the setting that God has placed you in. Leon Morris is a um, theologian wrote, conversion is not the signal to leave one's occupation unless it's clearly incompatible with Christianity and seek something more spiritual. All of life is God's. We should serve God where we are until he calls us somewhere else. The calling that God has given you specifically is the place where God calls you to live your life with the skills that he has given you. He's given to you. He has placed you there for a very specific reason. And sometimes people, our callings are hard. Our vocation is hard. Our placement is hard. And I'm convinced that one of the main reasons that we are discontent is because we root our identity in the wrong calling. We root our identity in our earthly calling, not in our heavenly calling. And when we look for our identity in our earthly calling, all the things that surround our earthly calling, you know, we're never going to be satisfied, ever. Our callings were never meant to satisfy us. So then what should define us? Being called by God. Being called a child of God. Being called a forgiven child of God. Because nothing can compare with the joy that we can experience in in, in knowing Jesus right now. Our identity is, is not rooted in what we can do for God in our callings, but what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Some of us just need to take it in. <sighs> Inhale. Understand that we're okay. You're okay, just as you are. It's not about you being a mother or father or engineer, owner, blah, 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 blah. It's you being a child of God. You know, and this doesn't mean that we can never change careers or seek to better ourselves. Paul is simply making the point that we should have a good reason to pursue a different calling. So when you find yourself wishing you had somebody else's calling, because we've all done that, all of us, right, from time to time, I know I have, boy, if I could only preach like this person or if I could only have a church like this or if I could only do this or if I could only do this. I know I have. When, when a restless sense of not knowing who you are, you know, really begins to undermine our ability, it, you know, it, it gets us amped up. It gets us anxious. And we find it hard to bloom where we're planted. But maybe if you're in that place, maybe you're confusing the two calls. You've been looking for true significance in the call of God to your vocation when really you should be looking for that significance to the call of God in the gospel in Jesus and who you stand in before the heavenly throne. Augustine of Hippo, he said, 
You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless if we look to our calling to satisfy us. We will only find rest for our souls when we realize that being called to Christ is what ultimately defines us. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you need rest? Think this way, not this way. Let's pray. God, our Father, we do confess to you that we often make that swap, that exchange. We trade out the rest and the freedom and the contentment that is found in knowing our identity is not derived from the things that we do and the vocation that we have received, but it's derived from Jesus. We swap that out. We trade that out for the the rat race in pursuit of the next big thing, and we're so easily fooled. Our heads are turned by the allurements and the temptations of the world around us. Would you please forgive us? And would you help us turn back to you to remember that that there's only, the only real freedom is in Christ. To come to the water of life, to drink and to, to never thirst again. And that is Jesus Christ. And some of us need to do that for the very first time. And so would you give them the grace, God? Show them the weariness that festers in their hearts that they can never be rid of until they run to Jesus and find rest in him. And grant that they might do so now today. God, some of us need to turn back to go back again to Jesus and to bend our knee to him and to begin to trust in him and rest on him and live for him. Give us the grace to do that as well. And so we pray that you would hear us, that you would draw near to us and have mercy on us for Jesus' sake. Amen.
Soul Sanctuary, go now. Follow where Christ calls you and proclaim the message that God gives you. Wait in hope for God. Avoid becoming bound up in the business of the world, but live in the readiness of the kingdom. May God be your haven and your glory. May Christ Jesus give you courage for his mission. May the Spirit embrace your soul in God's silence. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord and go and live the church. We'll see you next week.